Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Man, you guys can be seated. Um, before Ashley walks off the stage, um, you guys may or may not be familiar with a uh, verse in the Bible where Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in their hometown. Ashley has been a worship leader on our team, volunteer worship leader, for about three years through three or maybe four different venues, all the venues that we've had. Um, and we've celebrated having guest worship leaders. Today, Ashley has been leading that team. Would you help me thank Ashley for her ministry to us this morning? Thank you, Ashley. Man, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I want you to know something that we're working on. We're working on a uh, communications piece, an email that's going to start going out uh, probably on a once a month basis is how we'll start and kind of go from there. Uh, But we just recognize there's things going a mile a minute and we haven't always done the best job of letting you know all that is going on in the church. And so if you have texted that I'm in to 40777 or or you're on our active members database for some other reason, uh, you'll start seeing those probably sometime in early to mid-April. That's our hope. And so just be aware of that. If you feel like, man, I, I wish I had a way of knowing that is coming, uh, we'll be able to highlight some things. And let me give you one example of the kind of thing we don't get to talk about a lot on Sundays, but we want you to know about. And that is uh, William and Shiloh Karshima, who are part of our church doing missions work in Nigeria. Um, some of you would know them as pastors of Oasis Church, who we merged with back in April. And uh, they're doing just incredible things over there, uh, just in, in hard um, places in some cases. But uh, God has given them the opportunity to officially have their grand opening of their mission house. And that just happened in the last week or so. I got to talk to, to William on the phone. And so um, they watch our services. They don't get to be here with us because they're there. But on the count of three, would you say with me to William and Shiloh, we're going to say, we love you on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. We love you. Okay. So that's the kind of thing we want to give you updates on. God is doing so much here in Horizon West and in other places through members of Horizon West Church, and we're going to have the chance to keep you better informed of those things. Well, today uh, we're continuing in our We Are series that we have been in for several weeks, and what we're going to do today is look at some things in the life of Paul that were shifting, that were progressing, that were changing. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. So if you've got a Bible or Bible app, you can go there. Uh, We'll have most of the verses that we look at today on the screen behind me. Um, But the conclusion that Paul is going to come to, one of the verses that we're going to read in this passage, is that in the midst of all the transition and change from his life before Jesus and his life once he was a follower of Jesus, his conclusion is that the life of faith is to be a jar of clay. We heard that in the song we sang earlier, jars of clay. Now I wonder what enters your mind as a picture when you hear the phrase jars of clay. For many of you, it'll be this, right? That's the natural place that many of you go. But for some of you, the image will be this because you recognize the second greatest Christian album of the 90s was by a band called The Jars of Clay. I'll let you fight over what was the first greatest album, but there is a right or wrong answer to the question. As Paul talks about and unpacks this idea of believers being jars of clay, he's going to lean into an Old Testament concept. It's in several places. One of those is Isaiah chapter 64, 
verse 8, where the prophet Isaiah says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The Old Testament prophets had an image of their place as the people of God and the nation of Israel, that, that God was like a potter shaping them, forming them into his desired end result. And, and that even their captivities, their exiles, their challenges, their, their daily lives were all part of them being on this spinning wheel called life. And that God graciously, patiently, masterfully molded them into what he desired them for. To be and, and Paul's going to take that same concept and go, if, if they thought it was true then, how much more true, believer in Jesus, is it true that he is the potter and we are the clay? This is certainly true in Paul's life as he experienced the most remarkable transformation from one who was a persecutor of Christians to the great Christian apostle and missionary. And so in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see these three shifts. There may be more, but I think three stand out to me. And the first is a shift from a place of bondage to freedom. Listen along with me as, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning at verse 4. Such is this, uh, the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Jump down to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this very day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And all of this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Earlier this week, I was shifting some things around at our Oasis campus. I've got about 38,000 books that needed a bookshelf, and that's a slight exaggeration, but one of those books that I was moving had a picture fall out of it. And so I picked up that picture, and I'm not allowed to show you the picture, but it's me and Nikki when we were much younger. And on the back of that picture was in her handwriting, Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul uniquely, he wrote that verse, Paul uniquely understood the yoke of slavery that was brought on by the law. Paul was not only a Jewish person who was raised on the Torah and the Old Covenant law, but he was a Pharisee, remember, and he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, an expert in the law. Paul's life's work was to ensure that the Jewish people were, were lining up and aligning to the law. And all of a sudden, he has this radical shift on a road to Damascus where he learns the limitations of the law and the power of the gospel. And it will lead Paul to use this expression that we read a moment ago. He says, the letter kills, the letter of the law kills. He'll say further on in the passage, he calls the law the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. And you go, time out. I thought the law was given by God. Yes, 
The law is not bad. It's just that the purpose of the law has been and continues to be misunderstood. Paul says, when it's read, a veil or a curtain or a wall falls over the minds of people. And the delusion, the blindness, the misunderstanding is that the law was sent to make them righteous. That's not why the law was given. If I were to tell you that I'm a phenomenal basketball player, one of the best on planet Earth, A, I would be exaggerating slightly, more than slightly, but there would be a way that you could figure that out. Put me on a court with a phenomenal basketball player and see how I measure up. And if you were to do so, you would find that I'm only a decent basketball player at best. In fact, if I was to step on the court with somebody like LeBron James, and we won't get into the GOAT conversation or argument right now, but if I was to step on the court with LeBron James, you would find that in fact, I am not a very good basketball player because I'm not six foot nine and haven't dedicated my life to sculpting my body into the perfect NBA form to become one of the greatest basketball players of all time. That's how you'd know. You would compare it to something else. Paul would write a letter to a church in a place called Galatia, who, who was still, after coming to know Jesus, was like, and now we got to achieve everything the law said. And he said, time out, you're missing the point of the law. The purpose of the law was not to make you righteous, it was to show you how unrighteous you are. Not to go, oh man, i got to try harder then. It was to go, whoa, 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 I, I can't ever do this. In other words, the purpose of the law was to lead you to grace. And grace always leads to freedom. When Paul talks about Moses, just remember, you know, the, the great exodus from Egypt, he goes to the top of Mount Sinai, God gives him the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, and then all the additional laws as well, some 613 of them. And Paul says that was all well and good. The problem is the Jewish people got stuck there. They got stuck trying to earn their righteousness, and nobody knew it better than Paul. And he says there is something greater. There is freedom in Christ. Now that's the problem that the Jewish people have had over the years, and, and others, you know, those who are in maybe communist countries or those who ascribe to uh, Sharia law in Islamic countries, this, this binding of the law, that is not our problem in the Western world. There's another kind of bondage that we struggle with in modern civilization. It's called the bondage of lawlessness. This idea that nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can, I'm going to be the master of my own fate. I'm going to flex my muscles. I'm going to be my own person. And we can look around and see the devastation that that ideology is bringing as well. The truth is that we find freedom in the potter's hands, not from them. What I mean is that if we chase freedom apart from God, we will find the end of that road is bondage just the same. And there are people all over the world and all over our community, they want to spend their money however they want to spend it, but then they find themselves in financial bondage. They want to eat whatever they want to eat, but then they find themselves in deteriorating health and fitness. Want to be in romantic relationship with anybody they want to be in relationship and lose the opportunity to have a loving marriage and a healthy life at home. And the great paradox of freedom is that the commitment to unrestrained freedom leads to the experience of absolute bondage. When I completely throw off the, 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 the law and the word of God and, the, and I say, I'm just going to live my own way, I'm going to do what I want to do, we find that we're no longer able to stop 
doing what we started. We find ourselves living in addiction and compulsive behavior. Bob Dylan once said, you're going to serve somebody. Might as well be the Lord. Right? And so this is where we struggle with as a culture. C.S. Lewis addressed this in the book Screwtape Letters. Anybody read that old book from the 20th century? Okay. So, so context, Screwtape Letters is a fictional story of two demons who are discussing how to overcome a new Christian. Okay? So when you hear this quote, put it in that context. This is fictional, two demons speaking to each other, and they're talking about this issue of freedom and obedience. And here's what they say. One must face the fact that all the talk of perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. God really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. God's desire is not to absorb your will. It's not to, to, like a puppet master, you know, determine everything that you're going to do and think and say, but rather he is a God of invitation. That's why the Old Testament says, come all who are thirsty and drink freely of the living water. That's why the New Testament, Jesus says, come all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. If you feel pushed and pulled, if you feel enslaved and in bondage, that is not from God. God is a God of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As Paul learned this free conformity to the will of God, he experienced another shift that I see here in chapter 4. He experienced a shift from self-sufficiency to Christ-sufficiency. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we hold this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul uses this expression. He says, the one who said, light shine out of darkness. This is, of course, God, and it's a reference to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And Paul's saying, just as we understand that God is the source of all that exists in our physical world, every neutron and atom and particle, everything that is came from God, and so it is true in the spiritual as well. Everything that we have comes from God. And again, Paul knew this because he tried so hard to earn it on his own. He had tried so hard, he had gone as far as a person can go down the road of self-sufficiency and found it a dead end. And he says, no, all of this is from God. It's he who has shown in our hearts to give us the great gift. And what is that gift? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I believe what Paul is doing here is, is absolutely brilliant because he understands his audience and his readers. The church in Corinth that he's writing to is a Greek-speaking community living in the heart of the Roman Empire, having embraced the Jewish message of a Jewish Messiah, okay? There's a little bit of a, an identity crisis going on here in the church because each of those cultures has a different ideology, a different way of thinking. Each of them has a different supreme value. To the Jewish people, the great value was light, 
because God spoke and there was light. They imaged God as a God of light, a God of fire. For the, for the Greeks, they didn't care so much about that. They, they cared about knowledge. Think Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. They, they cared about academia. They cared, cared about the acquisition of information. And they would have these great debate halls and they would, they would discuss and they valued knowledge. And for the Romans, of course, the great value was glory, the glory of Rome, conquest, victory. Paul says to the church in Corinth, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. In other words, whatever any culture would aspire to as the, the chief value, the thing they, they worship, the thing that's preeminent to them in their ideology, Christ is the fulfillment and the sufficiency of all of it. And then it's like Paul can almost see his readers starting to go, man, I, I have all of that. Like, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself, right? Start to be this sense of confidence, man. Look at what I have. And he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. You may or may not know that jars of clay are, are easy to break, right? Not like plastic, doesn't bounce back. You drop it on the floor, it's shattered. It's fragile and not worth much. It not, not, doesn't have some great value. In fact, in those days, sometimes jars of clay are what they would use to relieve themselves in. He says, that's what we are. We're jars of clay. And so at the same time as you acknowledge this surpassing greatness and power that is in you, remember that you are simply an earthen vessel. Some of you grew up in communities, cultures, church environments, faith environments that stressed empowerment. Like, man, if you believe it, you can achieve it. If you speak it, it comes into existence. This is an empowerment culture. I grew up in a very different kind of environment. In the culture I grew up in, it was very much about how lowly people are, kind of worthlessness. Some people have called it like a worm theology. We're, we're no good. There's nothing good in us. Paul says, here's how we kind of remedy that tension. If you're a believer in Jesus, you hold surpassing power through the Holy Spirit, but you hold it fragilely. You hold it in an earthen vessel that is your body. This is, I believe, what is happening in Genesis chapter 2 when God is creating the world. Remember, when it comes to man, he does something different. He doesn't just speak man into existence. He stoops down, collects dirt. That's where we came from. That's where we're going. But then what does he do? He breathes the breath of life into it. Dust and spirit. And it is the healthiest people who, who learn and understand that they live in this tension between being an earthen vessel, being a simple jar of clay, but holding surpassing power through the Holy Spirit of God. Early in my faith journey, after I was walking with Jesus, I was reading Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I was devouring scripture in that season. And I read Paul say these words in Ephesians 3.20. He said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power at work, where? In us. I went, whoa, hold on. Like, I always knew that God was powerful. The problem is there was this separation between lowly, sinful, insecure, worthless Chris and this good, great, holy, wonderful, majestic God. And in the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us, these two have come together. Nothing without him, but everything in him. 
We cannot fully experience the surpassing power that God intends for us until we accept the fragility of our human condition as jars of clay. Have you ever known somebody that was just like boisterously arrogant? Anybody like hanging out with those people? <laughs> Do you know that I've, I've come to a place of having sympathy for people like that? Because what I have realized over time is people like that, they, they haven't been able to confront their humanness. They're always distracting you with how great they are and look at what I can do and look at how great I, I, I am and it's like I want to say, hey, it's okay. You can acknowledge your limitations. You can acknowledge your failures. I could talk to your wife and she'd tell me about them. Right? Like, oh, no, 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 look over here. Look at, look at how great. Even as Christians will do that. Man, God is good. I'm blessed. Everything is wonderful. Really? How do I sign up for your life? Because mine's different. Mine's a struggle. The, the prayer that I'm praying more than any other right now is one breath, one word. I do this. <sighs> Jesus. He goes, is that taking the Lord's name in vain? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever prayed with more substance or meaning. It's just laying hold of the name of Jesus because I'm broken. I need him. My life is fragile. I feel like sometimes it's pulling apart, and so I rest in the surpassing power that I hold in Christ. And being jars of clay means that our earthly bodies are not only fragile, but they are finite. Another shift, the third shift, and the last we'll look at today that I see in the Apostle Paul is a shift from the temporal to the eternal. Look one more time at 2 Corinthians 4 with me, looking at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Temporal to eternal. A man once became convinced that his body was shrinking. He reached out to his doctor. He said, doctor, I need to meet with you. I need to schedule an appointment because I'm, I'm shrinking. Doctor said, I'm sorry, my appointments are booked. You're going to have to wait. He said, no, doctor, this is so important. I need to get in and see you. I'm shrinking. The doctor said, you're going to have to wait. I can't see you for at least two weeks. The man pressed, but doctor, I'm shrinking. The doctor said, listen, you're going to have to be a little patient. I apologize for those that are not native English speakers. I probably should apologize to all of you for a bad joke. But listen, your, your body may not be shrinking, but I can tell you this, your body is, to use Paul's words, wasting away. And that's true whether you're 19 or 90. You know, our, our older friends, our older brothers and sisters, they're really well acquainted with this fact. They feel it. Some of us are like, no, man, I feel like I got, you know, decades to live. I got, I'm coming into my best years. And that may be true. But in the grand scheme of things, that earthen vessel, that jar of clay, is wasting away. It is failing. I started playing softball for the first time in 11 years, and I had our first practice yesterday. And I'm diving all over the field, y'all. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm back, right? Athletic Chris is coming alive. I dive for this one ball. One of the guys goes, man, how old are you? I said, I'm 40. I was feeling good about that. And then I woke up this morning. And my body said, 40 is different than 28. 
right? Like, like I'm starting to experience it. Like, I've got knees that pop now. Like, kids are like, hey, let's get on the floor. And I'm like, yeah, okay, we can do that for a minute, you know? But recognizing that this body is soon going to perish, going to return to the dust of the earth. And one of the things that happens in our context, in our community, and this is not a bad thing, Horizon West, kind of this area and surrounding area, really, really big on physical fitness. That's a good thing, right? God gave us our bodies. We should invest in them. We should nourish them. We should exercise them. That's good. The problem is we got a lot of people in our community that invest all of their time, energy, and money into their bodies and think nothing of their spirits. And it just doesn't make sense. It's just not good math. Paul said it this way to Timothy. He said, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and also the one to come. It's like, why in the world will we invest everything into something that is going to perish and never invest into our souls, which will live forever? Let me illustrate it this way. If you knew that by 2030, all currency would be Bitcoin, what would you do over the next few years? Well, you couldn't invest it all in Bitcoin because the reality is there's places that still don't take it. What you'd probably do is go, this is how much money I need for, for groceries and the things that are right now, but everything else, I'm investing in Bitcoin because this is perishing and this is going to last beyond it. And what so many people in our world fail to see is that what they're putting all of the eggs into their basket of is fading away. It is perishing. Scripture says that our lives are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. 50 years, 60 years may feel like a long time, but in the grand scheme, it is vanishing. It is a mist that is passing. You've probably heard it said about people, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I started examining that a while back and I went, is that true? Like there are some people that are just flighty, but wouldn't it be that being heavenly minded would cause me to do more earthly good? That's certainly what was true for the Apostle Paul. Because when Paul became obsessed with this idea that we will one day live forever in the presence of Jesus in heaven for all of eternity, you know what led him to do in the present world? It led him to plant at least 14 churches. It led him to write at least 13 letters in the New Testament. It led him to endure imprisonments and beatings and shipwreck and martyrdom because he recognized that with heaven looming and heaven coming, I've got to give everything I've got for the good of people in this life. And he gave it all. See, it's not the heavenly minded that are failing to do earthly good. It's those who fail to think of heaven at all. Just watch another TV show, put on another episode of Netflix, kick our feet up, vacation, do what we want to do, never think about the lostness of our neighbors, never think about injustices in our community, never think about praying, Father, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so to be heavenly minded is to do earthly good. And remarkably, as Paul is talking about these this transition from, transi uh, from temporal to eternal, he uses an expression that I want to highlight for just a minute. Those, those shipwrecks, those imprisonments, those beatings, you know what he refers to those as? He calls them light, momentary affliction. You're like, Paul, those are not light afflictions. <laughs> not anything I want to go through. 
So what in the world is Paul talking about when he says light momentary affliction? You might be here and you've recently got a diagnosis of cancer or you're experiencing chronic pain or depression or marital strife or a prodigal child and you're going, Chris, this is not light momentary. I would say to you that one who suffered about as much as a human being can suffer said it is when you compare it with what is coming. See, again, I'm a decent basketball player, but when you compare me with LeBron James, it puts it in perspective. Paul says, I know those afflictions are real. I know they hurt. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to acknowledge. We don't run from our pain. We don't pretend it isn't there. And yet when we hold up that loss, that grief, that hardship, and we say, but God, look what you're achieving through it. Look at what you're doing. This is turning into glory. The truth is, one day our jars of clay are going to break, shatter, crumble, and return to the earth. But the treasure, the person of Jesus, the Spirit of God living in us, that is what remains in the end. I want to encourage you, whether you're going through a hardship like that, or you're even dealing with end-of-life issues, or maybe that feels like a long way off, the truth is, what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is what is eternal. Let us invest in the kingdom of heaven and what will live forever. In a moment, we're going to sing a closing song of worship. We're going to have some folks down front. If you need prayer for whatever that issue is, we want to invite you to stay after the service, receive prayer. On the way out again, if you want to pick up a yard sign, pick up a, a card of invite, we want you to do that. But don't rush that moment. If you need prayer, we're here to do that for you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again that in this earthen vessel, in this jar of clay that Paul talks about, you have chosen to deposit the greatest of all treasures, the gift of salvation, the person of Jesus. And God, the only way I can think or the only reason I could think that you would do that is exactly what Paul said. It's to show that this surpassing greatness is not from us, but it's from you. And God, let us be a church that deflects all glory, all credit for anything good that happens. Lord, it's all from you. You are the treasure. You are our light. You are our champion. You are our King of kings and Lord of lords. We glorify you, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.